I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on tonight's episode. The class of 2024 adds another playmaker to the mix. We'll look at Will's article about the latest recruiting successes, and we'll wrap up discussing the QB rankings for all 14 SEC quarterbacks from our friend Michael Bratton at, of that SEC podcast. And we'll finish up here with Anthony Richardson's latest comments on Billy Napier. Will, we got the countdown to kick off. It sounds a little bit premature, right? Just post July 4th here. But man, the Gators are reporting in July here. July 30th, I believe, is the date. And they start fall camp the next day, July 31st at Florida. So we are in a month where there will be some form of football happening headed toward the regular season kickoff of August 31st against Utah. Yeah, man, we're not too far off. It's uh it always go. It, it's funny. It seems like it takes forever, and then when the summer hits, it feels like it flies by. Probably because we all have vacations scheduled and things like that. And by the time you get back from vacation, you're like, oh, it's fall. Um, yeah, and we got the early game this year, right? I mean, the game got moved up to Thursday against Utah. Obviously, again, playing a large, a large entity, uh, Power Five school to open as opposed to you know playing the Sisters of the Poor to start with. Like that just makes <laughs> a difference, right? And and so, you know. I think there are people who are very pensive about the season. At the same time, there's an opportunity to show that you're much, much better than last year right off the bat, right out of the gate. And so Florida fans, I think, are sort of sitting on the fence on that one a little bit. But, uh, you know, the other thing is, is that given recruiting, given the quarterback situation and those sorts of things, I think there are also some people who are sort of looking ahead to 2024 as well and kind of want to get 2023 out of the way. And I don't feel that way because I think you learn something every time you watch the watch the team and and – and just seeing the progress that the program is making is an important step, even if you don't have every piece in place. Um, but at the same time, I get it, right? Like you, there's there's a drive to see what's going to come in the future. And so, yeah, it's coming up quick, man. Camp camp coming up into the month. And then, you know, like the game's in August, right? So the game, game starts in August. Hopefully everybody's already taken that Friday off um, so that they can recover from whatever happens the night before. And, uh, you know, hope, hopefully the reason you're taking that Friday off is because you're celebrating a win. I, I got to get that one on the calendar. I'm glad you uh, made that reminder there. But speaking of the future, Will, here, let's dive right in. Jare Hawkins, a wide receiver here out of Wheeling, West Virginia. He will play IMG this fall, though, in Bradenton and just – Simple, if you need me to use one word to describe the guy, speed. That's it, just speed. Pure speed with this guy. The Gators wide receiver core just got a little deeper and a little more explosive. Hawkins is a threat to take it to the house every time he touches the ball. Dynamic playmaker. It creates big plays off of a screen. Or he could beat his man downfield. It's not even fair in high school football. Uh, He's just blowing by kids on the outside, just consistently over and over again on his highlight tape there. Uh, Really the type of playmaker we are used to seeing at the University of Florida uh, over the last 25, 30 years here and uh, should be a great fit to that wide receiver group that is already shaping up to be pretty interesting in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, look, we've talked about the wide receiver recruits who are coming in this year. I think people have gotten mad at me a little bit when I've said I haven't expected all three of them to pan out. I expect there to be a good player in that set, but I don't expect all three of those guys to pan out. But this is why you want multiple, multiple guys in this space. I mean, 24-7 says he reportedly ran a 4.25 in the 40-yard dash Mm -hmm. at Ohio State. So. You know, unless he just can't catch, like like you got somebody who's going to be returning kicks at a minimum when he comes in, right? And I think I think special teams, given how bad they were last year, and really given how how little of a difference they've made in the Florida landscape over the last decade, just having somebody who comes in on special teams would be great. But look, I mean, he also caught sixty seven passes as a junior in twenty twenty two, eleven hundred and seventy three yards, fourteen touchdowns. Um, in West Virginia. And then also, you know, you do have the added factor that this is an IMG guy and there is a perception associated with Billy Napier going in and getting IMG guys. Obviously you mentioned from Wheeling, West Virginia, that's one of the complications when you start calling IMG players from the state of Florida, but Napier's starting to build a pipeline from that IMG space. You know, he's not necessarily getting the absolute elite of the elite come out of IMG, but you think about Kamari Wilson, you think about now Hawkins, there's some other guys who've come in from IMG who, and just building up that pipeline means you're eventually going to get the opportunity for the elite guys. Cause a guy like Hawkins ha- 
has played with these guys who are going to be ranked third and 10th and 12th in the country, um, you know, for the, for the last two or three years, or will have played with those guys, you know, at two or three years from now, when those guys are committing, okay, now they'll have a pipeline. They'll have a guy they're in contact with and they'll be able to communicate same way. I'm sure that a lot of these guys from IMG have, have communicated with Kamari Wilson. So, um, you know, look, I, I think anytime you can bring in a guy who's got that kind of speed, you got to do it. The curiosity for me is usually when you got a guy with that kind of speed, you you see them ranked higher than this. I mean, Hawkins ranked 237th overall, which is a very good player, but not, you know, we're not talking top 50. We're not talking top 30. That's some serious speed to be ranked there. And so, you know, I, I suspect that probably the level of competition in Wheeling has a lot to do with that. And so he's a guy that we probably will see um, move up those boards pretty quickly. If he, if he has a good, good senior season. Yeah. I'll tell you, one of the things I like about this Gators wide receiver group here under uh, Billy Gonzalez here and Billy Napier, there seems to be a vision of what they want. They're building. You talk about, a receiver group. I, I always remember I follow uh, I mentioned a few times on the show that I'm a Jacksonville Jaguars fan. I remember the Jack Del Rio era where they just kept drafting the same model of receiver over and over again with like Matt Jones, Reggie Williams, just tall dudes. They were like a basketball team. They were so big, but none of, they, there wasn't that dynamic. There wasn't that dynamic like slot guy. There wasn't that they didn't they didn't mix it in well. They just kept bringing in the same model over and over. I like the mix of this group so far, Will. You look at the guys they're bringing in early, and it seems like a, a group that you could see all of these guys on the field at the same time together. Yeah, well, I mean, so look, I mean, it's been a long time since we had a guy at the wide receiver position who could take to the house. I mean, maybe Antonio Callaway is the last guy you just look at and say, I mean, Tyree Cleveland had the big Canaris. play again. Yeah, but I mean, Tony... Tony was interesting in that he had the big play against Miami and then really didn't do much of anything else that year. Was a big, big contributor, obviously, in 2020, but didn't do a whole lot before that. And I don't think of him as being a a burner. Like, he made guys miss and just was open by 10 yards and then was able to run afterwards and every once in a while sort of split it. But he wasn't a guy I thought of as you get the ball in his hands and take it to the house, at least not until the last three or four games of that season. Um I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I'm thinking like Antonio Callaway is the kind of guy who you get the ball in his hands. He And it's not just that he makes people miss. It's that they take bad angles because he's fast enough that they misjudge how fast he is. And all of a sudden he's going down the sideline, you know, like Tennessee in, uh, in, <laughs> in that game with Will Greer. That's a long time to have. You know, even even if you factor in Kadarius and have him in there in, in that in that space, it's still been very spaced out. Um, I still think the best receiver in that time has been Kyle Pitts, and obviously Pitts was somebody who who was a, a dynamic playmaker. But again, not a guy that I think of. You throw a screen pass and it could go any single time you throw it. Um, and and Hawkins is going to have that ability, right? But I think the bigger thing is exactly what I said earlier. Just having a guy with that kind of speed on special teams. I mean, you think about the contribution that Brandon James made to those Urban Meyer teams where he was never the best player on those teams. But how often did Florida start in enemy territory? How often did a game flip? Because all, you know, the defense had, and that defense didn't give up much, but the defense had given up a big play. And all of a sudden, Brandon James takes the ball the other way and puts Florida at like the 20 yard line. How often did he make the right decision when it came to taking a touchback or when it came to taking the ball out, getting, getting in the ball at the 37, the 38, the 39 yard line, as opposed to having to take over the 20 or the 25, those sorts of things with hidden yards. If you look at Florida last year, overall, they were really, really bad in terms of their starting field position. Um, and they started to get a little bit better once they put ETN back there on kick returns. But even then, um, and, and honestly, we saw it last year with ETN, right? When he was able to break kick returns, all of a sudden, the offense looked much, much more dynamic just because they were already starting in enemy territory. So if Hawkins just brings that, that would be something where he's contributing right away. But obviously, I think we expect more than that. We expect those you know, those orbit screens that were going out to Xavier Henderson last year are going to start going out to Dre Hawkins. And the expectation is, is Hawkins is going to do a lot more with him than, uh, than Henderson did. And, uh, you know, Hey, I'm looking forward to that. Didn't love the point about Tony, but I do love the point here that you're talking about just the, the different elements in which Hawkins can fit it. Because when you get a group that's this deep across the board. And Napier's bringing in solid running backs and solid, we're, we're getting a lot of talent across the board. Eventually the name of the game is what are you going to do with those four to six touches a game? Will? 
And this is an absolute, this guy can absolutely make an impact with those limited touches. Not everybody's getting 20 touches, right? Like unless you're Percy Harvin or something like that, you're not getting those 20. So what are you going to do with your four to six? This is a guy that can definitely do something with those four to six. Yeah, well, and I think I think it's interesting that you said they seem to have a type. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, just from the standpoint of Andy Gene is much more of a slot type receiver. No, I said so, they're mixing they're mixing it well. Oh, different, okay, okay. Different I'm, types I'm, of receivers. I like, misunderstood. So you were that was a criticism that the they criticism had, that, of the that, Jags. That, when the I bring Jags. up the Jags, it's usually a criticism. <laughs> I, I know they're getting it together. Things are going well in Jacksonville right now, but it, when I when I bring up anything uh, prior to the last year of Jags football, it's probably criticism. So, no, <laughs> I was making a point that in the Del Rio era, you had early Ernest Wilford, Matt Jones, Reggie Williams, you see these tall, long receivers, and they were all t- the same type of build. Like maybe they had a little bit of differences in their games, but they kept, they were focused on, well, we want tall guys coming in. We want big receivers coming in. And it's like, yeah, but you need that mix, right? You need the big receiver that you can throw the jump ball to, the shifty slot guy, the guy, the all-around receiver. I think of like when I think of all-around receivers, you know, if you're talking about Jack's football, you're talking about like someone like Akeem McCardell, right? Not a burner, but the guy who knows how to get open on third and six, six is just going to get you to that to that first down. Like that's the mix I'm talking about here. And I see Mizell is that Mizell could be that deep threat guy. Uh, Gene's kind of seems like that all around guy, and Wilson Wilson seems like he can do a little bit of everything, quite frankly. Looking at Wilson, so I'm interested to see all these guys play. But, Will, what you said earlier, too, I don't even think it's a controversial thing to say not all these guys are going to work out because the odds are that not everyone in your recruiting class does work out. You just have to go look at any recruiting class to see that. So, and that's why you always stress stacking out of position in the numbers. And and this is more of what we're seeing right here with the stack. Well, I mean, look, and I don't think you have to have every single one of them work out as long as Caleb Douglas contributes, as long as right. Bowman contributes, as long as this year, Ricky Pearsall contributes. Right. And I think we all expect that from him. Um, but you don't have to look too far. If you look at Tennessee last year, they had Brew McCoy, 52 catches, average 12.8 yards per reception. That was a transfer from USC. Then they had Jalen Hyatt, 67 catches, 18.9 yards per reception with 15 touchdowns. So Hyatt was obviously the guy that they went to who was the burner. And in fact, that was sort of the criticism of him coming into the NFL draft was he can't run routes. He, he just goes deep all the time and they hit him. Well, it turns out that's a really successful thing to do in college if you've got a quarterback who can get the ball to him. Cedric Tillman, uh, 37 catches, 11.3 yards per attempt. And then Ramel Keaton, uh, 31 catches, 18.1 yards per attempt. So you can see there Tillman averaging 11, Brew McCoy averaging 13, and then you've got Squirrel White who averaged, who had 30 right. catches for 41, average 16. Like Basically, they've got some guys who are burned they had some guys who were sort of that intermediate and obviously obviously Heupel was was picking and choosing who he wanted with those sorts of things look I think the reality is is regardless of whether the guy's a burner or not you want effective wide receivers on your roster and look if they were all six foot four we'd be like oh they've got a type this is great they're they're gonna (laughs) have those back shoulder throws right like we we would we would find some some positive way to spin it but there's not a whole lot you can do to ruin my mood when you tell me the guy runs a 4.2540. And obviously that ain't laser timed, but it, it was at least below 4.4, even if they were doing it with a stopwatch, right? So Fast. so from the standpoint of like <laughs> what we think of for the Florida teams in the past, where it was speed, 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 get a guy open in space, Hawkins is that kind of guy. Yes. And so, um, you know, Jalen Hyatt is probably like the high end of what we might expect out of him. But if he ends up like Jalen Hyatt, we're going to be obviously very, very happy with, with with Hawkins and what he contributes to Florida. And then, like I said, I mean, Brandon James is like the bare minimum where you've got a guy who's making all SEC teams as a as a special teams guy and then can contribute at receiver or running back in a pinch. I think you could think about that. Like that's like the bare minimum that you would expect to get out of Hawkins, which means you've you've just added an effective guy to the roster, definitely. Yeah, yeah you have the defense has to respect a guy who can run that fast. Even if you use him as a decoy, which I'm sure they will at times, you're going to get something out of him. So I, I, another solid pickup. Will let's transition into four bits here. You recently wrote an article called "The Florida Gators Recruiting Picks Up in a Big Way," and the hope around here is that June of 2023 will serve as the month at the point in time here where Billy Napier really established himself as a recruiting powerhouse at Florida. 
great month this past month here on the recruiting trail for the Gators. But based on your article, there's good evidence to support that notion. Yeah, well, so I think there's a couple of things. I always talk about waiting until August is over to evaluate a recruiting class. But with Florida's, you can kind of do it already because they've got 17 guys now in the fold, which means so even if you had Jeremiah Smith and Colin Simmons, who are the number three and number five ranked guys in the country, commit, you don't really move the needle that much on the average player ranking. Now, obviously, going from two stars, two five stars to four five stars would be a big deal from an elite talent perspective and the guys we expect to be drafted. But you're at a point now where you can really kind to look at Florida's class in relation to Georgia and they both got, you know, 17 or 19 commits and you can say, all right, this is sort of where they're going to end up and where Florida's going to end up is their third overall in point total on 24 seven, their fourth overall in average player ranking. Alabama is like ranked like 24th or 25th in the country. Cause they've only got like 11 guys committed, but all of them are five stars. It seems like, so they will eventually make their way up into that path. But what it suggests is, is that Florida, at least for the 2024 class, is recruiting with Georgia, Alabama, and Ohio State, right? They're right in that 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 path. And the interesting thing is some of the other programs that 2023 was much more favorable for, programs like Miami, programs like LSU, um, even a little bit for Florida State, those programs have all sort of leveled off. And that was the thing I think that was most encouraging. I looked at the first three years of each Florida coach going all the way back to Urban Meyer in terms of his recruiting rankings. And Meyer started out sort of middle of the pack of all these guys. And then he has the top two classes out of all the coaches who come since him um, in terms of ranking, but it, but it increased each year, right? So 2005 was his transition class. 2006 was better. We talk about that bump class being a, being a monster and it was, but then his 2007 class was even better than that from an average player ranking and, and a bunch of different ways of actually evaluating it. If you look at, Muschamp, Muschamp actually had a big jump from year one to year two, but then he took a step back in year three. If you look at McIlwain, I mean, his his recruiting was putrid, but again, he took a jump from year one to year two and then back in year three. Mullen did the exact same thing, a jump from year one to year two and then back in year three. That's not what's happening with Napier. Napier took a jump from year one to year two. I don't. I didn't like the the size of that jump, but it was definitely a jump. The quality of player was much much better, and now he's taken a jump from year two to year three. So if you're looking at historical sort of at least at Florida, where the one of the reasons why Dan Mullen didn't bring hope to the program anymore is because the recruiting was just stagnant. It wasn't getting any better. And so you looked getting whipped by Georgia three out of four times. You said, okay, that's pretty much the future. Yeah, you might be able to scheme around them. Maybe you catch lightning in a bottle with Kyle Trask and Kyle Pitts in one in one particular year. But that's what it's going to take in order to take down Georgia in a year where, you know, Stetson Bennett wasn't necessarily great yet in, in that particular year. In fact, I don't even think Stetson Bennett started that or no, he got injured in that game. So so that that I think is the, is the most positive thing. And when you start looking at like actual draft rates, like you can start to evaluate players based on their ranking. And what you see is that no coach since Urban Meyer has had this has had this high of a draft rate or predicted draft rate based on some models that I put together um, overall. The closest was Will Muschamp in 2011, but then, like I suggested, he actually regressed in 2012. And the interesting thing is, so if you look at it, it's Meyer in 2007, Meyer in 2006, then Napier 2024, then Muschamp in 11, Muschamp in 12, and then Napier in 2023. So Napier has now has two of the top six uh, classes. And these are just the first three for these guys, right? So Urban Meyer obviously put up big recruiting numbers in 2008 and 2009, and those would be high on that list as well. But really, if you're comparing these guys in their first three years, Napier now has two of the top six classes. So he's recruiting kind of at a Will Muschamp level, maybe a little bit better. And that and and this is coming pretty. This 2024 class is coming pretty close to an Urban Meyer class now. If you go look at what's happened in college football since Urban Meyer left Florida, there's obviously been a little bit of a stratification. And Georgia and and uh, Georgia and Alabama have recruited a higher level than Urban Meyer did back when he was here. So there's still there's still room to grow. But I plotted in the actual article sort of the average of Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. And then showed where Florida is in terms of expected draft rate. You can do the same thing with average player rating and and number of five stars and all that sort of stuff. And what it really indicates is that Florida is now, this 2024 class at least, is right in line with those three, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State. And so, and Florida has been significantly below those three now for the past five, six, seven, really the past decade. And so 
looking at that means better days are to come, right? It's not, they're going to have to hit on DJ Lagway. I mean, he's going to have to be a really, really good player because there's really nobody else there to, to, to take hold if he, if he doesn't turn out to be fantastic. So a lot relies on him, but the players around him are going to be able to maintain or at least are going to be able to start to hold up against a Georgia onslaught or an Alabama onslaught. And so the idea that you're going to win four in a row against Georgia right now, that's still probably not in the cards, but the idea that you're going to play four competitive games and that you go two and two and that, you know, the games are, are, you know, 27 to 24, really kind of like if you think about Alabama and Georgia the last couple of years where you've got the SEC championship game that Alabama wins, then Georgia wins the the rematch in the playoff. Um, You know, you think about like that Georgia or not the Georgia, the Alabama Tennessee game, 52 to 49, those sorts of games where they're ultra competitive. I think those are on the horizon given what we're seeing in the recruiting. Historically, Florida and Georgia has been a one-sided rivalry the whole, almost the entire time. When you look at Georgia's dominated for stretches, Florida had the last, you know, essentially, what, three decades here where they've taken care of business with Georgia. Now Georgia's entering in a time where they're kind of taking hold again. So this hasn't been the nature of the rivalry. hasn't been like, you know, one year Georgia gets them, the next year Florida gets them. That's usually not the nature of it. But you don't want to be 22-point underdogs. And I, I don't even want to say that that's the rock bottom because we might see it this year. So let, let's let's hold off on saying 22-point might be rock bottom. But, Will, what really excites me here, let me ask you something for people who don't know. When did you start, really start in, in the blog writing and all the podcasting? How long have you been doing this? What year uh, did you really start up doing this? 2017 is when I started reading Reaction. I started doing sort of freelance stuff in 2015. Right. So what's the conversation been like the entire time you've been doing this? Well, so originally I was defending Jim McElwain and saying that he needed more time. And then I started looking into the numbers and I went, no, fire him. Like, you know, not just because of the shark humping, but but because of the recruiting. So the conversation, (laughs) alleged, alleged shark humping. Yeah. So the recruiting conversation has been really at the center of the entire conversation at the, (laughs) around Florida football, since you've been, covering the Gators here. Uh, how how excited are you to see this start to turn a corner a little bit? I know we're not there. I know it's not September, but it's going in the right – you said it yourself in the article. It is going in the right direction. It's a lot different than the conversation we're having even the last couple of years here. I think there's two things. There's one, um, they're competing with the big guys, and, and they're starting to win some of those battles. And you and I talked, I think, a couple of weeks ago where – most of these guys are from out of state. And if they can start securing the state, whether it's this year or whether it's next year, all of a sudden that that just like boosts everything, right? Mm-hmm. So if this is what they can do when they're trying to go national because they're struggling necessarily to keep guys in state just because they're trying to build those those pipelines and those inroads, well, once those pipelines, pipelines and those inroads get built – all of a sudden now there's another level to jump, right? That if you look at the guys that they're bringing in, there's a couple IMG guys, but there's guys from like North Carolina and Virginia and you know, DJ Lagos from Texas and, and, and a little bit you know, of Texas been... flavor to this class. A few guys. Absolutely. Texas, and and yeah. honestly, that's where they have a pipeline, right? When you yep. think about Louisiana and mm-hmm. where they were going to recruit, that's probably where they have a pipeline and where they have relationships. So, um, but so that's the first thing is is that I think there's another level to go if they can secure the state. But the other thing that really encourages me is this is why Billy Napier was hired, right? And it's why Dan Mullen was let, let go. I mean, our buddy Dave, Gator Dave asked him about recruiting season, and all of a sudden it's like, well, we'll talk to that when we get to recruiting season. It's like, no, no, wrong answer, McFly. That's not the way that works. And 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 the narrative shifts at that point. And Napier was brought here to fix this. I'm, you know, there have been some missteps along the way. There's no doubt about that. I would have really, really wanted to see a bigger close last year for that 2023 class. But hey, you know, maybe there was more to build for those pipelines. NIL obviously throws a wrench in all those sorts of things, especially with given some of the communication issues that just the laws in the state of Florida sort of set up, but then we're also sort of existing within the program as well. Um, you know, you put all those things together and and now we're starting to see it. If he was recruiting at the same level as Mike Norvell, I would have zero hope for the program because it would be okay. We're we're eight and four, nine and three max in the SEC. That gets us nowhere. And honestly, before this 2024 class, you and I were sort of saying, well, can you recruit at this level and make the 12 team playoff? 
right? That was what that was what the conversation was going to be, which is essentially go get your butt kicked like TCU did. Hopefully you get an easy bracket and you can coast your way to playing one of the monsters at some point downstream and getting your butt kicked 65 to 7. And that's not where Florida fans wants to be want to be. That's not where the Florida program wants to be. So the thing that I take from this is there's another level to go, but this is also why he was brought here. And we're starting to see progress in that front. And not just like, oh, incremental progress. Like this is a significant jump up. And so having a you know, we're starting to mention his 2024 class in relation to Urban Meyer recruiting classes. And if he can pull in. Jeremiah Smith, if he can flip him from Ohio State, or if he can get Colin Simmons, the edge rusher, um, to commit. Well, now all of a sudden you're looking at three or four or five star guys. That's, you know, three top 30 guys. Those are guys who go to the NFL draft 70 to 80% of the time. And if you start a recruiting class with four guys and three of the four are going to be NFL guys who leave after three years, well, you have a foundation for what you're building that Florida hasn't had in a really long time. I, mean, I think the last time they had two five stars, they got two five stars right now. I, I'll probably screw this up, but I think the last time was when they had CC Jefferson and Martez Zivey in, in that, was a 2015 class for Jim McElwain that was basically those guys, Antonio Callaway, and just a bunch of three stars to fill it out. Um, and I think it was like 24th or 25th overall ranked in, in the 24-7 ranking. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since there's even been two five stars. So if they can pull in a third or a fourth, all of a sudden it's a much different class than we've seen before. And again, I go back to this is why Billy Napier was brought here. And so you have to be encouraged because we all know Look, it's not the only thing. There are plenty of guys like Texas has brought in top eight classes for the past decade, and they ran Charlie Strong out of town. They ran Tom Herman out of town and Sarkeesian. We'll see what happens with him, right, especially as they go into a conference that's not the cakewalk the Big 12 is. All that being said, the reality is, is we would have taken Texas's recruiting over the past decade. I, I, I actually think Sark is a great comparison at Texas in the sense that you haven't quite seen the results that Texas wants yet on the field. You might, you, you really, you should be at a point. This should be the year where they maybe take a step forward with that Big 12 schedule. I know they go to Tuscaloosa early, but they seem to have a lot of playmakers and viewers. He, he was a little up and down, so it really depends on his development. But their offensive line recruiting has been phenomenal out of Texas. And he, you see the bones of that roster really building. On that, so it's like you might look at. I think it. We, we wrote about it a lot in our magazine, and there's a reason why you're hearing this across a lot of Gator, a lot of Gator media space right now is preaching patience because of what you're talking about, Will. Where even if you know, I'm not talking about a Charlie Pell 1979 special here, right? We're not talking about 010 and one. We're not talking about 010 and one this season. But keep the bigger picture in mind this fall. Keep the bigger picture in mind because there are good times on the way and there are that we're building back into something in the into the stratosphere where we belong. But I did hear another point. Yeah, not not to not to squash the optimism going on here, Will, but I did hear a great point from Josh Pate over at the late kick on 24-7 sports. Pate, he reacted to what's been going on in Gainesville. He said, This is great. They're up there, they're they're right in the stratosphere there with Georgia. But here's the thing: can you do it again? And then again, and then again, and then again, because that's what George has done the last few years. So it's a great start. We're going in the right direction. But in terms of catching who we want to catch and going where we want to go, got to do this a few more times, right? Got to do this a few more times to get there. I mean, it's just like anything, right? I mean, when we look at when we look at recruiting, like I think Jeray Hawkins is going to be a good player. I don't think he makes or breaks this class. Now, if he turns into a guy who ends up as a first round NFL draft pick, then we'll be like, wow, what an awesome pickup of that particular class. But that's in hindsight, right? And if you're looking at the class and you're evaluating it, Hawkins is a big is a big deal to bring him in, but he's not the biggest deal to bring in in this particular class. But you still sort of look at the class as a whole, like he adds to what they are building specifically with this class. Same thing when you start looking at a program holistically, like they are going to take some shots and there are going to be like almost every coach in his third year has a down year. Almost every one of them, because they have a recruiting lull at the start, right? You get, they come in, their transition class isn't quite as good as as their normal class will be, and you get a bunch of turnover, right? And so what happens is the guys who stay, who already know the system and can prop things up and all that sort of stuff, stay and you win. So that's what happened with Dan Mullen. I mean, he had Felipe Frank start, he had David Reese 
on defense at middle linebacker. He had all the wide receivers who wound up going to the NFL, obviously brought in a couple of transfers, but was able to sort of squeeze everything he could out of the guys who were starting from the, from the Jim McElwain classes. And then actually squeeze an extra year out, right? Because his third year was 2020, and then everything falls apart in 2021 when all of his recruits are supposed to hit and there just wasn't anybody left. I think the the thing that we're going to have to watch, and this will be the thing about putting them together, is the reason that I and a bunch of other people really harp on the bump class is that second class sets you up for success where you're not waiting for year five for those guys to finally hit. And that's the thing about this 2024 class is as good as it is, there are going to have to be significant contributions from the 22 and 23 classes to maintain optimism around the program to where they can put together a 2025 class that looks like 2024. And honestly, better than 2024. And a 2026 class, it's better than 2025. So yeah, we should be very optimistic about where they are, but they are a year behind in terms of what has traditionally been needed to win the SEC. Can you buck that trend? Well, NIL is different, right? NIL makes a big difference when it comes to both. I think it hit them a little bit. Um, I think they were a little bit surprised at how quick the inflation was for some of these things. And then I'm not sure that they had the systems in place to do that. I think with some of the new NIL features that the university has brought out, they now have all that stuff set up or at least have infrastructure set up better than it was before. And that's not criticizing the infrastructure before. Nobody knew what was going on with all this sort of stuff. But if it delayed you by a year, then we have to delay expectations for a year. And that's where it starts to get a little bit, where you start to get a little bit squirmy because if 2023 is a rough year with Graham Mertz behind center. 2024 schedule is brutal. And you think about bringing in a true freshman, five star, going, he's the savior of the program. And if he struggles hey, now, Tim Tebow didn't hope? start as a true freshman. Just a great perspective, right? Chris Leak, didn't he start like it was about halfway through the season? Yeah. On that. But, so we, we haven't really seen a true freshman step in from day one, take over at, at Florida. And look, recruiting's about hope. And so DJ Lagway is about hope until he ends up on the field and he's either going to fulfill that hope or he's not. And, you know, if he ends up like, if he ends up like Trevor Lawrence, then Billy Napier is going to be in Gainesville for a really, really long time. And this program is, is going to skyrocket. If he ends up like D- DJ Uyagale, well, you know, now it's not like Uyagale was a terrible player, but he was a five-star guy, comes into Clemson, all sorts of talent around him and was never really a difference maker. And if that's what happens, well, then, then things look different, right? So it's still, it's funny. Um, you know, you look at all the recruiting statistics and, and, and look at all the rankings and all that stuff. And it's important, but at the end of the day, one of the reasons why Alabama want, has won a ton is because they had Jalen Hurts, Tua Tagovailoa, Mac Mac Jones, and Bryce Young. Right? It turns out those four guys are going to win you a lot of games. Now, you know they haven't won every national championship, and certainly, you know, Hurts when he was younger, the defense carried it a lot of the way when he was at Alabama. At the same time, I think we can look at what he's become in the NFL and say Hurts wasn't a bad player, right? Like even at Alabama. Yeah, he missed some deep throws, and he wasn't the most accurate quarterback at the time and those sorts of things. He was a great college quarterback, even at Alabama. Absolutely. So, I mean, again, but I go back and look at it and say, it's not like Alabama had a bum at quarterback and, and, you know, won national champion, like maybe a decade ago. Like you think about, like, Coker or you think about uh, Blake Sims. I don't know if they actually won the championship with, with Sims. But, you know, you think about those guys. McCarron was actually a really good college quarterback. And so... You know, you still need that guy, and Florida's going to have to hit on that guy. So, actually, I mean, I, like, yes, I think they absolutely have to make the 2025 and 2026 classes sing just like they have in 2024. But the success of this program is going to rely on can they find the guy to play quarterback? And right now, because Austin Simmons decided to flip to Ole Miss, and we were talking, you were talking about stacking earlier, there is no stacking. There's a one year transfer quarterback that they maybe bring in next year to sort of allow Lagway some time. And then it's DJ Lagway. Merch does and, have a second year of eligibility. If he, if he pans out and, and he's halfway decent this year, well, he he does have another year of eligibility as well too. So it might not have to rush. They might not have to rush Lagway on the field for that. Okay. <laughs> That's my well, analysis. I guess I know the direction this next part's going. Then our friend, Michael Bratton, 
of that SEC podcast has been creating a stir over the last few weeks here. I saw him get a solid Twitter debate over referring to Mark Stoops as only a good, not great coach. And Kentucky fans, they took exception to that. Well, they weren't too happy with that. Um, they, they, you know, have historical context for the program and the job he's done. I think Stoops done a heck of a job, but I also understood Mike's points too. He made some good points in that argument. Uh, but Bratton's, Bratton's latest work, ranked all 14 projected SEC starters at quarterback. And if your quarterback is ranked in the top 13 of that crowd, Will, take one step forward. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Not so fast. Not so fast there, Graham Mertz. Uh, Sitting there at number 14 on the list in the SEC here. Uh, We'll put up the graphic here. As you can see, he had Jefferson from Arkansas at number one with Daniels, number two, Dart, number three. Down the list, I know Will's going to love Will Rogers sitting at number four there. Lots to say on that, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Joe Milton, Joe Milton at six might have some of the Tennessee Tennessee visors on there, but I definitely see the potential in that offense there. I'll tell you what, I picked him as my sleeper. It was a sleeper pick for the All SEC team at quarterback, but Connor Wegman, not because I was in love with anything I saw per se last year with him. But Bobby Petrino's coming in to run that offense. And I am rooting for a dumpster far, fire there out of <laughs> Petrino and AM as hard as anybody. But if it goes right, which Bobby Petrino, he may be a lot of things, but he is a brilliant offensive mind who has had a lot of success with quarterbacks. That Wegman and Petrino combo in College Station might be interesting uh, this fall. Leary at Kentucky I was a little surprised with him at seven probably would have thought he was a couple spots up there will uh transfer from nc state lots of experience has had some injury issues but when he's on the field has been awfully good at times um beck sitting there at eight gotta see a little more on that that's why i'm surprised rattlers at nine i know rattler hey look rattler's a fun guy to hate on but at the same time Boy, there was a spark there those last couple of games. And I know, I know you think that's more the exception than the rule, and, and Rattler certainly has to prove that. But if they have that little spark cooking this year and they can get things rolling a little bit, that could be an interesting team up there in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, Milro at Alabama. Th- this is where I start to maybe get into merch territory on this. I think I think you're I think 14's a little rough on our guy. I think 14's a little rough. Uh, but you're really going Brady Cook? Brady Cook at, at 11 there, Will? I'm not sure. I, but, again, are we arguing between 11 and 14 at this point? You, you kind of, you know, well, you throw throw one, one in or another, but uh, maybe Cook gets a little extra respect from him because he's got some SEC starting experience under his belt. But Peyton Thorne, the Michigan State transfer, sitting there at Auburn, I think he could be interesting in Hugh Freeze's offense. Hugh Freeze, known, known for producing uh, pretty good quarterback play. And then, uh, of course, you got uh, Swan sitting there at Vandy. Uh, you know, maybe maybe a merch swap, uh, Swan swap at least, Will. So how, how do you feel about our guy sitting there at number 14 on that SEC podcast quarterback rankings list? So I like Michael, but he's a Tennessee fan. And so obviously, uh, I think when there's an opportunity to stick it to Florida, you probably take that opportunity when you're yeah. a Tennessee guy. And look, I do the same thing. If there was an opportunity to stick it to Georgia, I don't really care about sticking it to Tennessee because they only beat us once every two decades. So, you know, it, it, so that's okay. I, look, Swan was terrible last year, just terrible. In fact, Wright was the better quarterback for, for Vanderbilt. And if Swan's going to be the starter for Vandy, there's no way you can have anybody else at 14. His QB rating was 126.8. He had 10 touchdowns and two interceptions. That seems pretty good. But he had his average per his average per attempt was 6.4 yards per attempt. His yards above replacement, which takes his rushing into account, was negative 1.6, which is just awful. So zero is average. Um, so I just look at it and say, yeah, that's the guy. Um, Brady Cook actually is an interesting one because he wasn't much better than Swan through the air. Um, about the same yards per attempt average, 14 touchdowns, seven picks. QB rating 133.2. His yards above replacement was 0.14 because he did do something with his legs. The problem is he's at Missouri and there's nobody around him to help him out, even if he plays halfway decently. Um, 
So, you know, I don't know what to do there. I, I think it's going to be interesting. Petrino, I know that you're intrigued by what he's going to do at a I'm actually intrigued by what's going to happen at Auburn with Hugh Freeze. Freeze mm-hmm. is a guy who's got a reputation for turning things around really quickly. And that defense has not really been the problem until it's worn down. Like if you think about those Georgia-Auburn games we've watched the last couple of years, and, and hell, Auburn-Alabama the last few years, the defense has been able to get itself up and hold in those situations. You know, the Bryce Young game a couple of years ago where he looked like garbage for the first three quarters and then had to come back in the fourth quarter. Right. And even last year against Georgia, it felt like Auburn's defense was holding on and then the offense just couldn't do anything. And that was sort of the end of the game. So what can Freeze do there? Leary, I'm a little bit doubt. I'm a little, you know, going from the going from the ACC to the SEC, I think is a place where I start to wonder. All right, what's he going to do? Obviously, I think his pedigree's better. Rattler, you already mentioned. You know, I am concerned that the last three or four games of the year last year, sort of not in the same level, but Joe Burrow had an uptick in his last four games in his first year at LSU, and then all of a sudden just came in and was you know all guns blazing his second year. Rattler, first year at South Carolina, comes in, maybe a little bit tentative early on, has that game against Florida and basically goes, well, can't get any worse than that, and all of a sudden comes out firing. Now, it does help that he was firing against that Tennessee defense that couldn't stop anybody, and there were guys just roaming free all over the place. We'll see, but he has the pedigree to be able to put that together. His QB rating was like 172 his freshman year. Then it dropped to 155. Last year, it was like 140, somewhere in that range. So if he gets up in that 155 range, you're going to say, okay, that's a really good that's a really good player. The interesting thing to me, and, and this is why this is important, and this is why I actually um, – this is why I'm not very excited about Graham Mertz because when you look at my stat, yards above replacement, again, it takes into account how efficient you are through the air and – how efficient you are on the ground. And so how many times you run the ball versus how many times you throw it as well. So if you throw it a thousand times and you only run it 20, it doesn't matter if you get sacked all 20 times. I mean, it'll lower the number a little bit, but the passing is what's really going to dominate. If you look at the SEC last year, there were seven guys who were what I would consider like good to great in terms of yards above replacement. There are some guys who are right at the average marker, like 0.1, something like that. And I'm not counting those guys. Those teams went 36 and 20. So they wanted a 64% clip. And the only, and um, there were only two teams that were below 500 in the SEC. And that was Florida and Arkansas. So, and those were two teams that had the worst defenses in the conference along with Vanderbilt, right? So the offenses were good, um, or at least were were serviceable, and the defenses just left them dead. Other than that, you were going above 500 in the conference if you had a quarterback who fit that who fit those parameters. If you go to everybody else, they were 20 and 36. They won 36 percent of the time, and there were two teams. Mississippi State was four and four in conference, and South Carolina was four and four in conference, but no one was above 500 in the conference. So look, I haven't gone back and looked at this over the years. This is just one year. Certainly I'm sure there are some exceptions to the rule, but I think what we can say is we need somebody who's going to be able to at least play above average at the quarterback position and probably in the good area, sort of the Jake Fromm type of quarterback, maybe a little bit worse than Jake Fromm. Um, and Levis didn't do that last year. Levis was negative 0.08 on on yards above replacement because he took a ton of sacks and he wasn't that efficient through the air. And part of that is is that Kentucky's offensive line was terrible. But look, that's why I wonder about Leary. The other thing is if you look at a guy like KJ Jefferson, he had a yards above replacement one point three three. Well he struggled to stay healthy at times last year. Is that going to happen again? Because he's a guy who runs quite a bit. I think you can say the same thing about Jaden Daniels. The problem the problem is, is I can pick I can pick you know I can pick areas to criticize every single quarterback, but then I have to go back and I have to criticize Graham Mertz. <laughs> and overall in his career so far, he has a yards above replacement of negative 1.02. So we're talking like bad and it hasn't really gotten much better. So 2020 was negative 1.33, 2021 negative 1.36 and 2022 negative 0.56. So a little bit better in, in 2022, but just slightly. So like I sort of have him. I wrote an article that looked at him and Miller and and Max Brown, and the point was why not Max Brown? Like, like if you're gonna go five and seven, 
let's see what this kid's got as opposed to doing it with a guy who's just sort of consistent. And from a ceiling perspective, I sort of see Mertz being like the negative 0.2, negative 0.1 yard range, like just slightly below average. And what that means is that means a below 500 record in the SEC, or at least you're going to have to have a defense that can help you get to that 500 mark in the SEC. And, and that's a problem. So, um, you know, <laughs> I don't think he's 14th. I think, but I, I think it's absolutely fair to have him like 11th or 12th. Yeah. You're and, probably, you're probably in that 10 range at least. Right. And, and the, and the yeah. question I have is, does it even matter at that point? Right. Like we yeah. can get mad that he's not, that he's not below Swan and that they're giving Vanderbilt credit. Well, first off with Anthony Richardson, Vanderbilt won the game last year. So maybe that's why he's getting credit there. And then the other aspect of it is, is it just doesn't really matter. I mean, Kentucky below average quarterback play three and five Vanderbilt below average right. quarterback play two and six Missouri, three and five Mississippi state, four and four Auburn, two and six and and M two and six South Carolina, four and four. That is your ceiling is four and four in the conference. If you have below average quarterback play and two and six is probably your floor. And so that, that in every, I think that actually is the reason why uh, the fan base has struggled to embrace Graham Mertz and, and analysts have struggled to embrace Graham Mertz because if your ceiling is four and four in the conference, like, what are we trying to accomplish? There, like, let's go see what else we have. Th this is – I actually – I know we, we're kind of joking about him being 14th here, and that sucks and everything, but I like the low expectations for him coming into this year. I don't think I, – I would hate it if people were too high on Graham Mertz. I would rather be too low on Mertz and have him come in and pleasantly surprise us. Because, I, th hey, look, this is a guy – in Mertz's defense – he he did play in a system that really didn't allow him to shine. It was didn't sound like it was a great fit. Uh, Chris didn't really adjust the offense to his skill set. He was more of a shotgun guy in high school. We've heard all that talk throughout the the off season where we can justify and explain away different things. Perhaps okay, fine. He still has to come out and prove it. But you got guys like Beck from Georgia on here. Milrow, we've seen a little bit of Milrow. Milton certainly. I, I do think Joe Milton and Graham Mertz have squared off against each other. Will, do you uh, happen to know how that result turned out? I mean, I'm assuming that Graham Mertz won because Milton is a guy I'm pointing at and going, I don't know about that in terms of like, and uh, yeah, you make fun of me because I loved Hendon Hooker when he was at Virginia Tech and it ticked me off that they allowed him to transfer to Tennessee. Not, not allowed him, but it ticked me off that they made the situation such that he decided he wanted to transfer to Tennessee. And I thought he was going to be good when he went there based on the stats he already put up. And then he even took a step forward there at Tennessee. There's nothing in Joe Milton's profile that suggests to me that he's going to be able to put up anywhere near the numbers that Hendon Hooker did. And look, I mean, within Heupel's offense and if the defense at Tennessee improves and all that sort of stuff, but without Hendon Hooker, that team's eight and four last year or seven and five, right? Like if they just get average quarterback play, because I mean, Hooker right up until the Georgia game was leading the Heisman Trophy voting. Like, I mean, in terms of like the polls, you know, the the straw polls that they take and that sort of stuff. Hooker was right there, one and two um, up there with the Heisman. In fact, Caleb Williams winning it was a little bit of a uh, – uh, it just didn't seem right considering that the SEC dominates college football. Um, obviously, Hooker gets has the injury in, in the, in the game. Hooker stays healthy and they beat South Carolina. He's probably the Heisman winner. Probably. Well, hell, he's right. also playing in the playoff. But um, right. so – I look at that and I just go, that's a lot to replace. And so if you asked me, <laughs> if you asked me who's going to get better quarterback play, Kentucky or Tennessee, I'd probably tell you Kentucky. I think Leary's probably going to be better than Milton. The only thing is I, I I trust Heupel more. And I know Kentucky brought back Cohen, the old offensive coordinator who had gone to the Rams is back after, I believe, one year absence there in Lexington. So they, the offense well, so, should be better. Well, let me, let me ask you, like two years Heupel ago. offense with Milton. Uh, sure, that, but though, but two but... years ago, what would you have said about Harbaugh? Three years ago, what would you have said about Harbaugh? Now, maybe three years ago at Harbaugh, you would have said, "Oh, he's a bum. I, he's going to get run out of there." No, see, I'm, but... I'm I'm different on that because I I always he was a game away from the playoff several different years against Ohio State in the mid against Urban Meyer. They win a couple of those games during the playoff. I, I think expectations are a little nuts with him, but it's been good for them that they've had the breakthrough. Uh, to finally get over the hump and win some Big Ten titles, but that's a that's a situation. You look at Michigan to Ohio State, Florida trying to catch Georgia here. Hey, it, it took a few years for Harbaugh to really 
lay the groundwork and get things done. But you look at it now, and that's a good matchup between Michigan and Ohio State once again. And that's really the hope that we're trying to push for here down in Gainesville. But uh, in terms of the Milton conversation, I like the fit with with Heupel. However, he is unproven. He did not play very well in the limited time we've seen him. He had a good Orange Bowl. I, I, I We saw that. Uh, but I do like him in the Heupel system. If you're comparing him to Kentucky, I, I'll, I'll sign up for anything Heupel's putting on the field over anything Stoops is putting on the field at quarterback. So that, that's really – it's more of the system than, than the guy himself. But to finish that point I was making about Merch versus uh, Milton, uh, 2020, 49-11, the Wisconsin Badgers uh, take down the Michigan Wolverines. So Graham Mertz has already won and 0 against uh, our boy uh, Mike's uh, Tennessee quarterback there. So we should we should maybe let him – maybe send him the highlight clip from that game, Will. Well, and if he goes 2-0, then maybe that's what you said in the highlight clip. Be like, hey, look, <laughs> two in a row, buddy, two in a row. Want to bump them so. up to 13 yet? The other, So the other – I want to talk about the top three real quick, Jefferson, Daniels, and Dart. Uh, number three, I certainly like Dart in that system, but I wonder if Lane Kiffin would agree with that because he went out and got two quarterbacks in the transfer portal there. Will, you like Dart there at number three? Uh, He was pretty good last year. Yeah. Um that that's that's the place where I just go okay, yeah, I see it. Like this is somebody who 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 was good last year, so why are we trying to upset the apple cart? So Dart had a YAR of 1.05, a QB rating of 144. That's a guy that, you know, look, you can go to war with. Is he is he absolutely fantastic? No, but they were they ranked fourth in the SEC in yards per play. Lane Kiffin needs some transfers on defense. He doesn't need 17 quarterback transfers. He needs some transfers on defense. But I think having insurance and having somebody in there who, if there's an injury, can step in is a big deal, right? If 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 uh, let's say Graham Mertz does play well for Florida and then he goes down, do either of us have a lot of faith in Jack Miller to be able to keep things going? Or is it, oh, crap, like we thought we were screwed with Graham Mertz and now we're really screwed because Mertz went down. Oh, now um, we have the 14th best quarterback in the SEC. Well, That's what I, that'd probably be my reaction. <laughs> so Jaden Daniels is the interesting one in that list. Mm-hmm. He makes a lot. So 17 touchdowns, three interceptions, um, 144.5 is QB rating. That was a career year for him. Um, is that because – like, is that sustainable? I guess is one of the questions that 17 touchdowns and three interceptions is an elite ratio. And given some of the limitations in terms of his ability to throw the ball, um, I would be surprised if it stays there. He had the lowest yards above replacement, which is funny because you think about him running all over the place, but he wasn't really all that efficient when he ran the ball. He had some big runs, but he wasn't all that efficient. And that, I think, is going to make him come back to earth a little bit. LSU was only seventh in yards per play. Obviously, things picked up towards the end of the year, but um, you know, the team was clearly overmatched by Georgia. And I think there are going to be some opportunities this year for other teams to overwhelm them with talent. You know, they got Alabama sort of a weird game. They end up getting Alabama there, you know, uh, young through an interception down the red zone when Alabama had an opportunity to sort of really kind of put them on, put them on, uh, not put them on ice, but put them on their heels to start that game and, and wasn't able to do that. Um, so there were some weird things that happened last year for LSU. The, the extra point <laughs> that they miss early in the year, obviously that maybe goes in their favor too. So we always talk about one score games going one direction or the other, and they had, they had things go each direction. Um, We'll see. I mean, I think I think the, the concern I would have with Daniels is who's behind him. And, th- and this is something actually one of the things that we can list the top 14, the top 14 quarterbacks. But one of the things we have to really probably do is list who do we think has the top two, because your season either falls apart or you're able to sustain it if the backup can come in and keep things going over the course of the year. And for a guy like Daniels who runs a lot, but isn't very efficient, that means he's getting hit a lot. And so if he's getting hit a lot, is Daniels going to be able to make his way all the way through another SEC season without an injury? We saw last year, Jefferson, you know, had a couple of games where he was injured. Arkansas had a terrible defense and Jefferson had to constantly overcome that. And then in the games where Jefferson wasn't in there, they just, they just had, didn't have a chance. And, uh, but I actually agree. I think Jefferson is by far and away the best quarterback in the SEC this year. Um, I don't have a lot of hope that their defense is going to be that much better, but he will be the guy I'm scared of when Florida's playing Arkansas. I mean, if if Florida had had Arkansas on the schedule any other year, I'd be like, all right, this is one we'd pencil in as a win. But with with uh, with Jefferson out there, I, I am a little bit concerned about that one. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, so not too much debate on, on the list. A few points to nitpick here, but fairly good job here. Good job there by uh, our friend Michael Bratton over at that SEC podcast. Great, great show they put out there. Him but we're still sending him Joe Milton tape if Florida beats Tennessee. Like, we yeah. have to do that. Yeah, I expect to see that from us there, Mike. Uh, all right, let's wrap up here. Richardson had – Anthony Richardson had some interesting comments here uh, about Billy Napier and the changes he saw within the program at the University of Florida uh, last season. Uh, credit to David Rosenberg over at Gators Wire for this article here, reading off of his article – the OTAs, the way Coach Napier did it and the things he made us do leading up to OTAs, I can see the resemblances in Indy. When I'm up here, when I'm up there practicing with them, Richardson said, it's more structure for the players to do their job instead of the coaches having to coach them. So Coach Napier definitely does create a sort of independence when it comes to do, uh when it comes to you doing work and wanting to do work. Richardson also praised Napier for changing the culture at Florida rather quickly. Players were motivated to outwork one another, knowing they'd get a chance to play if they were the best man for the job. Transfers and freshmen thrived at various positions in year one, and the team looks completely different heading into the second season under Napier. It's clear that the former UF quarterback still looks at his time in the swamp fondly, and he openly credits a lot of the successes, a lot of his success to Napier's system. Will that translate to other players heading to Florida in hopes of getting uh, an NFL-like experience? Only time will tell. That comes from, again, that's uh, David Rosenberg over at Gators Wire. Will, interesting comments coming from the number four pick in the draft. I think a lot of people – We'll look at Anthony Richardson. It's certainly the conversation you hear on the national level too. Like, well, man, Florida, they couldn't do a lot with that guy last season. That that, that was great quarterback going number four in the draft. We saw him up close. We saw that there's still some growth there. And we see the potential that the NFL sees with Anthony Richardson. So it makes sense. If Richardson could go and have a great career in the NFL and be this type of ambassador for the program and really put, uh, you know, his stamp on Billy Napier as well, just like Napier put his stamp on Richardson. I, I think that's a great look for the program. And that's certainly, we talk about 2023 and it being uh, potentially part of laying the foundation for something bigger. This is something here with Anthony Richardson. We may not have gotten all the results we wanted last season, but he's at least, uh, he, he's speaking on things that we talked about these criticisms within Mullen's program. Well, what, it, so if you're a freshman, you just have no chance to get on the field. Like how many times would we have seen ETN if ETN had committed to Mullen, which it probably wouldn't have happened, but if he was in Gainesville, how many times would we, would we have seen a guy like ETN in, in the backfield last year? So I, I think there was a lot of interesting points made in this article it really speaks to the difference in the program under Napier. And you like to see a former player uh, really come back and praise the program like that. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One is that I think the praise from Richardson is maybe makes a difference on the edges. It's not going to make some huge difference where somebody goes, oh, well, Anthony Richardson says that this program is is like an NFL program, so I'll go there. Maybe you take a look. Right. And then that gives you an opportunity to take a look. But the the, the staff is still going to have to sell a guy on playing time, how they're going to use him, all that sort of stuff. I think what it does speak to, though, is that in the NFL specifically, the talent is essentially equivalent across the board, unless you're the Jaguars for most years or you know the Lions or something like that. For the most part, the talent is really, really close. And yeah, you've got Pat Mahomes in Kansas City and you used to have Tom Brady in in New England and Peyton Manning in Indianapolis and that gave teams an advantage. But even those guys weren't going 16-0 every year. I mean, Brady only did it once. And so what that means is that organization and structure and maximizing practice time and making sure that the players feel empowered and understand the vision of the program and the vision of what they're supposed to do on the field become a premium, right? Because your strong safety has to know what to do 
when something happens that's outside of the framework of what he's been coached to do specifically, right? In the NFL, nobody waits to see the pre-snap alignment, looks over to the bench, and then comes back and makes a play call that the offensive coordinator has or someone has told him to change based on the alignment and doesn't have to read the defense at all, right? That happens in college football all the time. And so the fact that that doesn't happen in the NFL means that your guys have to be prepared, have to know what to do within the framework of the program you're trying to run and the scheme you're trying to run that I think is what Napier brings. And even, you know, when Napier was hired, he had sort of, um, there were some talks, I think on coach tube that you could find where he had talked about what they do at different sections of the field, how they divide up their play calls, the organizational structure that they have and those sorts of things and and how they make decisions based on, based on analytics and whether they're going to go for it on fourth down and all that sort of stuff. And, and sort of the advanced scouting that they have where they already know the tendencies of the teams that are going to come in and what they're going to do in those situations when they come in. All that being said, Dan Mullen's a hell of a play caller. And Mm -hmm. so from the standpoint, like, you know, Steve Spurrier was sort of the same way where you've got this feel and you just sort of go for it. And it turns out that feel is accurate an awful lot of the time because you're just gifted at doing those sorts of things. It also, I think, undersells Mullen in terms of his ability to understand scheme and understand his ability to teach it to his players. Because obviously, look, Dan Mullen had offenses that were really, really good when he was here. The place that the, the place the team failed was on defense and in the recruiting room. Um, so, you know, like if we did have a sour taste in our mouth with Dan Mullen, we'd all go, yeah, if he was the offensive coordinator, we'd probably be okay with that right now. Right. And so, eh, I mean, I think it makes, it makes a difference around the edges. The other thing is, is that we'll see how the Colts actually look. Right. I mean, um, obviously the, the Eagles staff just got strafed after going to the, after going to the Super Bowl, and Shane Steichen was the offensive coordinator for that Eagles team. He's been in San Diego and Los Angeles where, you know, they've been sort of innovative with Herbert there. Um, and, and before that was, was with the Browns a little bit, but, you know, so he's been on some innovative staffs in the NFL. He's seen how those programs have been run, but we don't know how he's going to do. Right. So if Anthony Richardson says, Oh, this program is great. And then the Colts just look like garbage and he doesn't develop. And, you know, (laughs) then this gets thrown back in Napier's face where, Oh, you're running the Colts program. Well, that's really successful. Alternatively, if Anthony Richardson turns out to be an awesome player in the NFL and Steichen goes on to win three Super Bowls and the Colts become the class of the NFL, well, okay, now the comments ring a little bit differently, right? So um, if this was like the Kansas City Chiefs that Richardson was going to under Andy Reid and he said, yeah, Napier runs a practice just like him, I'd be like, oh, okay, like that 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 says something, right? Because it's an established program that Napier's copied. But the reality is, it's it helps around the edges. It's good to hear, but that's all it is, man. At some point, you got to throw the ball out there and win some games. Tom Brady only went sixteen and zero once. <laughs> I mean, you not know. impressed, huh, Will? Not, not <laughs> at all, man. He probably, he probably had deflated footballs all sixteen games. It's a hell of a quote. <laughs> only did it once, loser. All right. <laughs> That's the show, everybody. Thanks for joining uh, tonight on Read and Reaction. Will, any magazine updates for anybody? Yeah, so we're really close to sold out on the hard copies. There's maybe two or three, I think, copies that are left. Um, Had a couple people email me about that. I'll be getting back in contact with them. Um, And then, so all of them shipped. Anything that was ordered, pre-ordered, or has been ordered since the pre-order or or since the the magazine came in to to my house has been shipped. I had a little bit of a, I would say fender bender, but it wasn't a fender bender. I had a tree fall on my windshield about a week ago. I've seen the pictures. It's a real deal. It's yeah, it, it, was, it, it was, it was, it, it threw me for a bit of a loop. It was actually the day before the magazines came to my house. So, um, Scary. all of a sudden the magazines came, they just sort of sat around for a few days. So I apologize. They may be a couple of days late, but they should no, be no, hold, this week. hold on though. You were driving, you were going about what? 30, 40 miles an hour. You said in the neighborhood, yeah, let's go 40 miles an hour. And, and there was a tree that had come off during a storm and it just fell through the canopy when the wind started rustling. Um, and yeah, I, I thought somebody shot me with a shotgun or something. Cause there's yeah. like a perfect circle <laughs> in the middle of the windshield and yeah, 35 miles an hour. I think just hit me right in the windshield. So probably lucky I'm alive to send out no. the, uh, to send and, and not injured to send out those magazines. So the, uh, the magazines are going your way. If you ordered it, 
um, it has been shipped or, I mean, if you ordered it yesterday, so today's July 5th, if you ordered it on July 4th, then it probably hasn't shipped yet, but only a couple hard copies left. We do have digital versions left. Um, that's something we'll be pushing for the rest of the off season, I'm sure. Um, or you can go over there, buy a digital version. Those won't run out because we don't have to print those. So uh, if you want to support us, if you want something to read on your iPad while you're sitting at the beach over the next month or so, if you want it right away, you can get it over there at readandreaction.com slash M-A-G. That's readandreaction.com slash mag. And thank you, everybody, for your support. This is awesome. Having a second print run, um, you know, having that get to the point where we're almost sold out, um, it's it's awesome. So just a few left. Put in your order if you can. Um, if you get there and you can't put in a hard copy order, then it means we've hit, we've hit our max and they're all gone. Um, and, uh, you know, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, well said. That. Just echo, Will. Thank you for all the support out there. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, with the magazine this year and we'll we'll talk more about the digital copy i'm sure this summer but will i'm I'm really glad you survived so that you can get those magazines out to people <laughs> you're not the only one buddy you're not yeah, the only good. one so uh but yeah it was a little bit scary so uh hopefully uh hopefully people will forgive me if it gets in their in their mailbox on july 7th instead of july 4th like i promised so all right well have a great weekend everybody and go gators go gators Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.